We believe the Bible is a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. Let's just say that together one more time. Read it on the screen. The Bible is a unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. From the Old Testament to getting into the New Testament last week, we are coming to the end of Matthew 26. On Tuesday, we'll go to the next book in the Bible, which is Matthew. Next book is... Very good. You guys are a smart bunch right there. And... Um, it's so fitting to me how the Lord led me this week in my studies that I think this is going to be a blessing to us all, myself included. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, it says this. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. I find it not funny, but imagine the type of love that Jesus had, even in this moment right here, where Judas is sitting at the table. You ever catch that when you read stuff like that? And it just starts to, it hits you. Because we don't always feel like we're getting it right, do we? Yet Jesus would still have a sit at his table. And I find that funny. Okay, whew, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Today, if you're taking notes, I want to speak to you from the subject of communion matters. Communion, it matters. It's not a dead tradition. It's not something that was just for them in that day. It's for us, and it's got significance. So let's pray. Father, help in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Thanks, Nate. You know, one of the things that could happen in church if we're not careful. Now, I use the word if we're not careful to make sure that we all understand that this can happen. But it's one thing to be very mindful of. If we're not careful when we gather into the house of God to take things that God would consider holy and right, to never take them for granted. I, I know, I know we live in times where it could just be that things will slow down again. We don't really fully know for sure. But if we were to go back and look at the past year and a half, and we've all lived through it in some way, shape, or form, there's been a lot of things that kind of felt like it was taken from us or, or stripped from us. I was hearing, listening to a pastor the other day and he was talking about how pastors didn't know what to do with themselves because if they went inside their sanctuary and there was no people, they wouldn't even know what to do because part of what I do is I preach. Yeah. Now, it's not the only thing I do. Contrary to popular, I don't golf all the time. <laughs> I love golf though, or fish. But it was hard. And it was also hard on people too because man, church is where they find their community of people. And it's that one thing that we had that we would come together. And so I heard this statement said a lot, and it's not pointing any fingers, it's not being upset, but it's amazing how many people said, man, I wish I would have attended church more often. Because when it was completely taken away, they wanted it back. And I say that as an illustration to say, if we're not careful, the things that God would call holy and powerful and needed, they just become dead tradition. You know what I mean by that? In other words, we could do things for tradition's sake 
and miss what God wants it to be for us. We can miss it. I think one of the most attractive things in a church is a body of believers who know how to worship, who read their Bibles, who involve themselves in the working of the local church. I believe, matter of fact, that when we have moments of worship, like we just did in just a moment, imagine a first-time guest being in our sanctuary and they see a bunch of people that are worshiping God completely. Recklessly is the wrong word. That could sound really bad. (laughs) Without abandonment. Like, yeah, I sing bad, but I don't care. I'm still singing. I know they're clapping right now, and I'm probably not going to get on tempo, but that's okay, because I'm not clapping for you. Like, ooh. Sorry, but every white person in the room didn't didn't clap right there. (laughs) You didn't. I don't mean that wrong, but I'm white, so I'm just going to say it. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Like, like when the worship team, like imagine if you're a person coming here and you look around and you see people that are just pressing into God, how attractive that would be. How much a person would, would wonder, man, what is in them? How do they have that? I think a great worship service and a great message and great community is how you build a church. So I'll tell you right now, you can get all the stage decor you want, all the great lights you want, a sound system all you want, you can get all of that. But that doesn't change people's hearts. God does. The Holy Spirit does. Now, we still put our best foot forward, right? Aren't you guys glad that the, you know, the AC's on inside the sanctuary on days when it gets hot? We don't have one at the parsonage, so sometimes I just sneak over here like, oh, turn it on. (laughs) Communion. Jesus is having communion with his disciples We're talking about one of the most important things that we'll observe together as a body of Christ inside of a room, communion. I want to show you today from the scriptures where it originates. I want to show you what it is for. And then today I want to show you how to prepare yourself to take communion the way that Jesus taught his disciples and the way that in the early church that they did. Many of you have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about the newer one. That's the Prince of Egypt. That's the color one. But Charleston Heston, anybody right here? Okay. Some of you don't want to raise your hand because it dates you. It's okay. It's all right. Well, here's the deal. Communion, it actually stems from that story, from the story of, of Moses. It originates there. So Moses was born a Hebrew child. You guys remember that. But then there was a threat going upon the kids. So they put him in a basket. He floated down. Someone from Pharaoh's house picked them up, and a Hebrew went into Egypt and eventually took charge. You guys know the story? So he starts going there, but one day it, it gets made known that he's a Hebrew. And all of a sudden, a bunch of things begin to fall apart. A whole bunch of things. Causes all kind of problems for him, okay? He gets exiled out of Egypt. 80 years on the back, they say he was 80 years old on the backside of a mountain, when he had that burning bush moment. You guys remember that in the Bible? We kind of did that in our, in our series. He had this moment at the age of 80. And all of a sudden, he begins to have a conversation. And God speaks through that bush and pretty much says, hey, look, Moses, here's the deal. Scholars believe there's about two to four million people that are slaves. You're the man that I'm going to use to get them out. You want to know what Moses does? He argues with God. Like he doesn't like... I don't know what it is about the Old Testament characters like Jonah, like go to Nineveh, preach the gospel, people get saved. He goes the other way. 
Like God literally had a conversation with them. He's like, no, I'm out. Then you got Moses, right? It's like, man, Lord, two to four million people, you want me, little Moses, little kid in the basket, growing up in the courts, why shouldn't you? You want me to do that. He starts to argue back with God. So God, because he's good, amen, God is good. God says, okay, I'll help you out with this. So as you know, nine plagues go towards Pharaoh. And every single time, what did it say about his heart? Got hardened and hardened and hardened. On the 10th plague, though, the 10th plague changed everything for Pharaoh. His tomb began to change. Now, the 10th plague was that every firstborn male child in every family was going to die on a particular night. That was going to be the plague. And so God said to the Hebrews, this plague is not to be upon you, so here's what I want you to do. This is kind of that you got to understand this to understand the Passover that Jesus does. Because I want you to go get a lamb. It's got to be a year old. It's got to be a male, and it's got to be spotless, perfect. It's got to be completely perfect. What I want you to do is I want you to take that lamb. It's kind of graphic. I want you to cut its throat. Then I want you to drain the blood and paint it upon the doorpost of the house. You guys know of this. I, I'm going to keep asking because I want to make sure we're on the same page. You know, interaction's good. I get all nervous when you just stare at me. Um, so what happens? The death angel comes through the city. And if he saw blood on the doorpost, the angel kept going. So those children and those families, they were, they were protected. And so from there, we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 12. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service that you shall say? It is the Passover, sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Now from that point after this, a tradition begins to take place. You can use the word holiday or something that's happened known as the feast of the Passover. So that's where it was instituted. So God said, Here, here's the thing. I want the Passover feast to help you always remember the night when death came through, but because of the blood, he passed over you. I love how God uses mental pictures when you're reading the Bible. Now fast forward the story, 1,400 years. Jesus is now on the earth. I love it. You love it? I love it. For 1,400 years, the Israelites celebrated the feast of the Passover. But now it's about to change. It's about to get different. Jesus is on the eve of being crucified. And so we looked at Matthew's account, but I want you to take notice of what Luke says in his account, Luke 22:15. It says, then he said to them with fervent desire. That word fervency means like, there's like a quickness to it. There, there's a, it's, it's like when you got kids. Who's got kids? Raise your hands. It's like when you really want them to understand what you're saying, you bring them in very, very close. Because you fervently want to tell them, this is mightily important. Don't worry, I don't grab my kids like this, okay? It's just my hands. This is massively important, Jacob, okay? Jesus is saying, look, we're going to do this. And he says, I have fervent desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Again, remembering Judas is at the table. Then goes on 
said, verse 18, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now Luke changes the conversation a little bit, where Matthew didn't say, do this in remembrance. In Luke's account, he recalls Jesus saying that when you do this, you're doing it in remembrance of me. Why is that so important? Why would Jesus want to make sure that they understood, do this in remembrance of me. I'll answer it this way. Do you have a habit in your life? It doesn't have to be a bad one, by the way. It could be a good one. Do you have a habit in your life that's very hard to break? Show of hands. It could be a weird habit. Just a habit. Some of you are like, you don't want to know my weird habit. Okay. <laughs> so to stop that habit, you would have to consciously not do it and avoid it and avoid it. For 1,400 years, they've done the Passover a certain way. So Jesus is saying, I have a fervent desire to do this with you. Then at the very end, he says, because I want you to remember that it's not about a spotless lamb, a one-year-old lamb. Now the Passover is actually pointing to me. So what's crazy in Bible talk, for 1,400 years, this is a prophetic message that Jesus... Remember the guy we've been talking about? Unified, uninterrupted story that leads to Jesus. Right here, Jesus is pretty much saying, hey guys, it's all about me. Now it sounds a little like selfish, right? But Jesus is not selfish. He's trying to tell these disciples, look, he holds up the bread. He said, this is my body. He, he holds up the cup, which by the way, in translation, it's lost. You see lowercase t-h-e, lowercase c-u-p, in the translation, it's the capitalized. Jesus is saying, I am the cup. This is my body. And it's given to you. So when a family would celebrate Passover, they would set up, let's just say they had six people in their house. There would actually be a place for the coming Messiah. That would be known as Jesus. They would set up a whole spot just for Messiah. So imagine that day as the disciples and Jesus are sitting at that table. They've done Passover a certain way for 1,400 years. So whoever set the table might have been Martha. We never know. She was really into the details, right? <laughs> but there was Jesus plus 12. That's 13. There was a 14th place setting. And I can imagine Jesus in this moment reaching over to grab that cup saying, by the way, guys, this represents me. I am the Messiah. Now, I have a feeling through reading through the stories of the Gospels that they understood that this was the Messiah. I understood that they believed. But Jesus was changing the ways that they were doing things. And then he gives them this charge to do this in remembrance. That night, I think the disciples understood the true meaning of Passover. That everything was pointing to Jesus. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For indeed Christ, what's that next one say? Our Passover was sacrificed for us. So in short, communion, which represents Passover, is really about Jesus entering into your life, into my life, and because of what he did, erasing the sin that you and I find ourselves in or the lifestyle that we had before coming to Jesus. 
Jesus is saying, this is me. We know for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So Jesus, he steps in all of our lives with his own blood. Just like I used to put on that doorpost, Jesus makes it personal. Because of his blood for you and I, he steps into our life. And we get the forgiveness of sin. And we get the protection of God. Passover. I want you to take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Are you all getting what I'm saying? Jesus was instituting that, hey, this is how you did it. But I'm the one that they've been prophetically pointing to. Now this is something you're going to do often in remembrance of me. So now it begs the question. If this is something that as believers and as a church body that we have to do then we have to ask the question, how is it done the way that God would want it done? And how do we keep it to where when we do it, it's not just some tradition we do because we say we go to church, but because it's us understanding that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, how do we bring power to this moment for you individually and us as a church corporately? How do we do it? So I love about the Bible. It actually answers us. It tells us what we do. So there's three things that we first gotta get. Three things that you need to know about communion. Number one is that communion is a reminder. It reminds us. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So God's desire for each of us is that communion is always a reminder that the death angel passed over from us. It's a reminder that Jesus paid the price for us. That's the reminder. I, I don't know if, how much I could illustrate this other than do you realize how messed up your life would be if you didn't have Jesus? Do you realize that if you start doing the things, though, that are in the Bible, more so out of tradition, instead of really trying to connect with God and understand what's going on, it's going to be dead tradition to you. At the end of the service, we're going to come and we're going to take communion. And if you don't understand this, you're not going to get it. Like, not, like I'm not going to say, no, go back to your seat. <laughs> but you're just going to be going through the motions. Like, I don't know if we fully realize how powerful this moment is going to be in this service. But here's the deal. If you're not expecting God to do something powerful, when you do something that he said, do in remembrance of me, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. So I'm going to get up here for 30 minutes and just try to get you fired up. Okay, cool. <laughs> Jesus knows our tendency to forget. Amen? So that's why communion is where we stop. We just pause it all. Say, okay, I got to do this. Number two, communion is a symbol. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. In the same matter, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink, again, in remembrance of me. Now, there are some people who believe, some religions that believe, that when you take communion, when you eat the bread or you drink the blood, that it actually becomes Jesus. No, it's a symbol. And I say that very respectfully, by the way, because I realize some people were brought up and taught that way. But according to our Bible, it's a symbol. 
Because I, I got to be honest with you, like I know there could be some really weird things in the Bible. You ever read weird things in the Bible? In case you're wondering, the Bible actually calls you weird. Do you know that? And me weird. It's in Corinthians. It says we're weird people. In other words, people, they, they sometimes won't understand why we do what we do. They won't get it. So anyways, you're weird. As am I. But what happens is, you come and you grab these symbols. And just think about what they, they represent. Think of Jesus' body that was just tore up before actually even getting to the cross. You know what I love about our Read Scripture app that we're doing? Is the fact that in the next four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see the price that Jesus paid over and over and over and over. And it is my prayer that it never becomes old for us. It's my prayer that when we look at the story where Jesus was beaten and his beard was pulled out and his back was slashed, where he wasn't even recognizable, that we would understand that when we pick this up, that the symbol is it represents that. Because here's the reality, guys. If Jesus didn't come and Jesus didn't die, this is all a waste. But we know he did. And how we know he did is because your life has been changed. And you couldn't have done it on your own because let me just say something, you ain't that good. And neither am I. It's because of what Jesus did. So it's a symbol. It's an observation or observance for believers. Number three is this. Communion is a statement of faith. It makes a statement. Verse 26, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So now we're moving into faith in this deal. It's almost like Sabbath. There's a little bit of some parallels here. A lot of people don't understand that Sabbath, which is the one day a week that you take off that you cease from work, okay? Next year, I'm gonna do a whole series on Sabbath. I've already been working on it. We're gonna get through the year of the Bible and then we're gonna hit that one because there's something very interesting about Sabbath that could almost do the same with this right here. For example, Sabbath. Okay, if you're a child in Israel, you're, you're in Israel and someone says, hey, I'm coming from, I'm coming, I'm just making this up. I'm coming from the United States and I wanna come over on, on this day and meet so we can talk about business. Well, that one who observes the Sabbath would say, I can't meet with you on this day. Which would then lead the person to say, well, why can't you? Which then would help this person say, oh, that's because I'm observing the Sabbath. And then this person would say, well, what's the Sabbath? And then this person would say, well, it's so funny that you may ask. Well, let's just sit down for a moment. And then they would begin to explain. And what it became is it actually became a witness to the person. Communion in the same way. It proclaims the coming of the Lord. It proclaims his death. It's a statement of faith. So communion is a reminder. It's a symbol. It's a statement of faith. Okay. Have you ever um, flown on a small jet before? Show of hands. Small jet. Okay. How many of you guys sat in the passenger seat and the, the pilot was the one who was, like, they flew for you, okay? If you're cool and you got to fly, I'm jealous. I should not be because that's against, anyways. So, um, have you ever seen their checklist before they actually take off on a runway? 
Now, we don't get to see them on big flights because they close the doors, and you can't pretend like you're a 12-year-old the rest of your life, you know, like when they let you come in and see if it's your first time ever, because that would be lying, and you just can't do it. But the checklist is extensive, even for a little small plane. So I had a buddy of mine, he was going on a flight, and he was going to be in a passenger seat, and he went on just one of those small planes. They were just going out to, a, to an island in Seattle. It's called Orca Island. So they went out, and he sat there, and he watched this pilot who's been a pilot for 30 years. Now, by that time, you probably got this flying thing down. Okay, you've got, it's like for those in your jobs. You do it long enough, you've got it down, you know what you're doing. Yet this pilot, no matter how long he was doing it, still went through the entire checklist. Boom, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Got out, got back in, checked this knob, did this here. And so all of a sudden, the gentleman leans over and says, hey, you know, you've been flying this thing for about, you know, 30 years. Why, do you, why are you worried about the checklist? And the pilot said this. He says, because once we're up in the air, it can only take one thing to make this a whole other scenario. If one thing is off, we're not landing that plane. Or that plane might not make it to where we want to go. It's a checklist. I use that in a sense because now we're going to show you guys the checklist that Paul talks about before receiving communion. So that we can really fully understand, we understand why it's important, but now we have to understand how we actually get ourselves ready to go into it. And I realized that on a Sunday morning to, to take some time to preach on a thing that we do once a month and is usually just a three or four minute part of our service, but I want this to be something that when you do take it next month, or if you're visiting with us and at your church they do it weekly, which some churches do, that you approach it with a reverence. You know what I mean by that? Like you approach it with, man, God, you have been, like the song, you've been so good to me. And I'm doing this to remember that. So Paul gives us this checklist. And I think it's, it's worthy of us to go. And so 1 Corinthians 11, number one, is you have to examine yourself. If you're going to take communion... You have to examine. 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, watch here, will be guilty of the body and of the blood of our Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it means we have to come face to face and ask the Holy Spirit to point out things in our life that should not be there. Now, how many of you guys know? I'm going to smile now. How many of you guys know? You know when you've messed up, right? You know where you've blown it this week, where you maybe blew it on the way to church. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know what your mind has been thinking. Sometimes the mind can't slow down enough and words come out of the mouth and you're like, man, can't take those back. Like, I don't think you guys need anybody in your life saying you did that wrong and you did that wrong and you did that wrong. But you do need the Holy Spirit and you do need God to consistently check you. So you have to be able to say, okay, God, examine me. Now, again, some of you, yep, I know exactly what I need forgiveness for. Got it down. But for some of us, it's maybe a matter of like, no, Lord, is there anything in me that I'm not seeing? Is my attitude towards a person wrong? Am I not treating people equally? In other words, am I doing something for someone else that I wouldn't do for anybody else? You know, the Bible talks about that, right? So, so Lord, am I missing it there? Lord, am I not patient enough with my children? I'm working hard. How about my spouse? Like you gotta say, God, examine me. You know what it could be too? Could be a lack of faith in your life. 
doesn't have to be like a, you know, really bad sin, which sin's equal, by the way. There's just consequences are different. Sin is sin. Maybe it's not even something like that. Maybe it's more so that you doubt. That you doubt what God can do with your life. Now, you wouldn't verbalize it that way, but in how you conduct your life, you would. Because you take everything into your own hands. I got this, God. Watch out. That don't work, that don't work too long. So maybe it's that. Maybe, you know, remember Jesus' words when he said, do not worry? Jesus said that. Maybe you're a worrier. I know I've been one before. You've been one before? So you got to examine yourself. You have to look at those things and go, okay, God, is there anything there? Look at Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of the everlasting. You know who wrote that? David. Remember David, right? How many mistakes did that guy make? Still a man after God's own heart. You got to examine yourself. So I want to challenge you today as we get ready to do this. To be bold enough to say, hey God, challenge me. What am I holding on to that's not of you? See what I'm saying? All right, number two, after you do that, and God maybe highlights something, number two is you gotta confess your sins as Nate comes. You gotta confess your sins to God. First John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is good, he is faithful, and he is just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a really good deal. On the other side of confession is God saying, I'm ready to forgive it. I'm ready to cleanse you from it. Can you imagine God being excited over you saying, God, I messed up. And God going, yes. I don't know if God would do that. But can you imagine God getting excited? I don't think you know, but he, he does. Because, okay, if sin separates us from God, what brings us back to God? Ah, confession. So when you say, God, would you forgive me of, and you fill in the blank. Some of you might need a paragraph. Some of you might need a journal. I'm just joking with you. Maybe. Um, you see what I'm saying? Man, listen, there have been seasons in my life where I'm like, just give me the journal right now. I've got a lot to write. Just a lot to go. We've all been there. Confession actually moves the heart of God. And that, I mean, I don't know, Mark, what do you think? Do you think that's good? I do. It just doesn't always feel good doing it. Because you got to come to grips with the fact that you actually made a choice. When people say sin is out of their control, I'm like, no, it's not. Mm-mm. Because the Bible says in Corinthians that he gives you a way of escape. So every time you're tempted to do something that's not of God, there is always a door. Sometimes God gives us like five doors. It's like, just run through. Don't even open the door. Run through the door. I just think God works that way. Now, I know I'm going to be a little bit humorous with this, but 
Any parent in here ever said to their kid, now you tell them you're sorry? Yeah. yeah. Kai in the back has both arms up and his legs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it wasn't sincere. Mom and dad were trying to show them that we say sorry when we do this. But what I first need to do is I need my child to understand why it was wrong. That's my job as a parent. What did you do wrong, MJ? What did you do wrong, bud? I mean, he's, on the computer. he's on the computer right now. His head just did this. <laughs> that kid blows me away. Anyways, that's for another story and I'll start crying. MJ, what did you do wrong? Well, dad, and then he would say it. Do you realize it was wrong? Yeah. Okay, let me show you what the Bible says about this real quick. Parents, parents, take the extra two minutes. I don't even care if you have to Google it. What does the Bible say on whatever? Talk with your kid, ask them if they know, and then show them what the Bible says about it. I'm telling you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay off dividends. Right, MJ? But when you just say, hey, go tell them you're sorry, it's not really sincere. Can I just say something lovely? God doesn't want, I'm sorry. He needs you to recognize, man, this is what I did. He already saw it, guys. Didn't take him off. He, he saw it. But you're saying, God, I confess my, and you fill in the blank. And because of his word, he wipes the slate clean. Oh, that's good. I, I pray that never becomes ordinary in your life. I pray that you, like, let that sink in, how willing God is to do that. All right, number three, you got to recommit your life. Now, some of you might say, I've given my life, my life to Christ. I see how you can see that word recommit and just think that's the salvation experience, but it's not. That's the recommitment that at whatever the Holy Spirit pointed out to me, that I asked forgiveness for, that I now recommit myself to the Bible, to God, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to do the best I can in all the ways I can, not do what I just did. So you have to recommit to that process. Okay, I don't mean this wrong, so don't look at me weird or upset, but that's like at the beginning of the year. We recommit ourselves to, and you can fill in the blank, reading our Bibles every day, praying every day, going to the gym every day. Um, Balancing my money better every day, right? We recommit to it. Communion is a time to recommit your life to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm recommitting myself to you. I'm going to do a better job with your help, by the way. Throw that in there because if you got God's help, it's probably going to work. God, I'm going to do my best with your help to be a better husband, a better dad, a better pastor, a better friend, like this is personal, right? If I was making it about me. God, please make me a better drummer because I don't know what I'm doing back when you're talking. But you have to recommit yourself. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means to recommit, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Notice the words, I urge you. Paul's like, look, I urge you to do this. 
Man, I'm telling you, this will change your life if you just present yourself to the Lord. Recommit yourself to the Lord. I'm urging you. In view of what? God's mercy. Oh, I love God's mercy. I need God's mercy. So offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And then look, look what it says. This is true worship. Now, it's not just worship. It's worship to God. Like worship, where is it first mentioned in the Bible? Genesis. Isaac had to be, remember? Place of worship. So, in this, our checklist, Lord, search me. Lord, forgive me. And I recommit my life to you. That's our checklist this, this morning, almost afternoon. That when we come up and we grab the symbol, remember these are symbols. When we come up and grab, that we're going to do this in a manner that is worthy.